question to start the day with. Does character matter? Yes. Does it always matter? Are there some jobs that character might not matter? Good answers. <laughs> no debate or anything. You know, but culture, culture would debate that. Culture would say character doesn't matter except for a few select jobs, right? Especially in politics, we see that. Doesn't matter what I do on my own time. It doesn't matter what goes on behind closed doors as long as I lead well. You laugh. It doesn't work that way. A question, I'm going to throw it out there, something that people on that side of it will use as their argument is who would you rather, if you're flying somewhere, who would you rather have control your plane? Someone that is an incompetent pilot but very moral or someone that's a competent pilot and immoral? <laughs> just want to, just want to hurt your head as we start this morning. <laughs> what? You wouldn't fly? What was that? <laughs> Take a train. That's right. But that's an argument that's used, especially in the political arena, to say, see, it doesn't matter. Your skills for the job matter more than your character. But we would disagree with that. How would you answer someone that gave that argument? Okay, there's problems with it, like, how does he have a pilot's license if he hasn't shown himself to be competent? It's an artificial question, isn't it? It's set up to be two viewpoints, neither of which, well, it, it, only one of which seems like a logical solution. In, in real life, are those the only two view, possibilities, only two viewpoints you could have there? No, I, I want a competent and a moral pilot. Let's go with that one. And, and, and but because of the nature of the choices, that's eliminated. As well as something like piloting an airplane is not necessarily a moral activity, but we know that actually all activities are moral activities. And so it's an interesting argument, but really something I wanted to start this morning with to get us thinking about what does character have to do with ministry? What does character have to do with being useful for Christ? Does how I live Monday through Saturday affect my ability to minister in the church on Sunday? And you're probably thinking, well, of course it does for you. You're the pastor. You only work one day a week. And so, you know, <laughs> absolutely it matters, but not just for me, but for everyone in this room. God is more concerned about our character and our walk with Him than how we how many ministries we happen to be part of. Because it's only people that are sold out for Christ and are clean for Christ and have, have a walk with Christ that can effectively lead in the church, that can effectively minister in the church. Two weeks ago, we built a wall together. And if you remember, there was some difficulties with hammering in the nails, right? I don't know if I mentioned this last week or not. Some difficulty with hammering in the nails. Come to find out I had bought the wrong nails. They're a little, I bought the skinny ones, and apparently you get the fatter ones that, that don't just bend as soon as you look at them or something like that. And so it was the wrong tool for the job. It, was, it, it did not have the characteristics you would need to get that job done. The same is true when we come to ministry, when we come to saying, God, use me. How many want to be used by God? Almost every hand in here. God, use me. 
And if we don't come with the right attitude and the right spirit, we're skinny nails that are just going to bend and we're not the right tool for the job. This morning as we come to what Paul is teaching Timothy and through Timothy to all of us and through this letter to all of us, Paul is reaffirming that who you are on the inside, how you are walking with God, the nature of your life makes a difference of whether you're useful to God or not useful in the kingdom. And we can be sitting here as a church and we can have vessels, we can have people that are ready to be used by God that God can just use to to pour out His grace on others and to do His ministry. And we can have people sitting in this room that are not at all ready to be used by God. And that He won't use because things in our lives are stopping that. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, excuse me. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And while this is a challenge to Timothy, it's in his word, inspired truth for all of us, and it's in his word that Paul says to Timothy, teach this to the church. So this is for every one of us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 20. We want to talk about becoming an instrument for noble purposes. Someone that is useful to God in His work. What He is trying to do with His church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20. Earlier in this chapter, as we've been going through it, we've seen calls for, for Timothy to be a soldier, to follow Christ as a servant of Christ, to be entrusted with the Gospel, a farmer, an athlete, to be careful about what he says and how he says it with his words, to be not ashamed... And now we come to verses 20 through 26. We're going to talk about pots and pans. Verse 20. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And in verse 20, he sets up a metaphor. Verse 21 will apply the metaphor. But this metaphor he sets up is he gives a description of this great house. And we know from earlier in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy 3.15, he calls the church the household of God. In fact, in verse 19 that Pastor Andrew talked about a few weeks ago, we see the firm foundation was probably referring to the church. And, and he's just continuing that metaphor. You have a firm foundation. What do you build on a firm foundation? A house. So this great house here is referring to the church. And he says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. And he sets up this comparison here between different kinds of vessels or pots and pans. And they would have, just as we do, I don't think they're much different, but they would have certain pots and pans that would be made of gold, made of silver, made of of fine metal. Those are the ones you bring out when guests come over. Okay, those are the ones that were for noble purposes or honorable purposes. They were useful for ministering to others. They were useful for serving others. And then you also had a class of pots and pans or vessels in your house that were made out of clay sometimes, wood sometimes. And in this case, Paul is very specifically saying those for dishonorable or ignoble use. And that phrase probably is referring to the kinds of vessels that they used for some of the dirtier parts of life. These would be the garbage pails. They would use a a, a pot um, for, for human excrement and human waste. That was their toilet. And those would be the clay pots 
those would be the wood pots. In fact, they, they often would have one called the chamber pot, which would be something in the middle of the night if you didn't want to go out to, to use the facilities. You'd use this pot, put the lid on it, and then in the daytime, go empty it. They didn't have electricity, running water, things like that. And, I, and I, you're like, I can't believe we're talking about this on Sunday morning. To understand what Paul is saying, we have to understand what he's saying. And so he's setting up this comparison between honorable and dishonorable, or noble use and common ignoble use. Would you take a pot that you were using for, for garbage or waste and use it for cooking the next day? No, let's hope not. No, you wouldn't. You would have vessels for honorable use that were designated for a more useful task. And so he sets up this comparison in the church between people that God is able to use in an honorable way and people that because of the nature of their lives with Him are not useful to God at that point in time. So he explains this in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And he's using this illustration to focus on how do you become useful? How do you become honorable? And he's reminding Timothy, if you want to be used by God in a powerful way where you're at, in whatever ministry you're at, let's start with cleansing yourself. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable. Probably referring to the false teachings that are happening, but we know from the context and the verses that follow that Paul is now expanding that to say anything that is dishonorable to God. Any sin, any blemish, any stain in your life, we need to be cleansed of. Point number one is just sort of an obvious point. A clean pot is a useful pot. A clean pot is a useful pot. Make sense? Think about that spiritually. A clean pot is a useful pot. In my life, in my spiritual walk. I have a pot here from, from the house. And imagine if... We have a potluck today, right? Imagine if I was cooking for the potluck. Okay? That alone is a little bit scary. Some of you are already laughing. <laughs> Let's say I'm cooking for the potluck and I, I went and get this pan out of the, the cupboard or maybe my, my boys have been using it for ulterior purposes. And I say, you know what? I'm going to cook for the potluck. i got to get rid of some things. Here's an old apple core. Some leaves. Oh, coffee grinds are in that. Some dirt here. Okay, let's cook. Why won't you eat it? I, I, I emptied everything out. It's not clean. It's not clean. The word here for cleanse yourselves of these things is a word that is, um, is not often used, but it has an added emphasis of really clean. Scrub. Make sure every speck is out. I could take a paper towel and wipe it out the inside. We ready to cook? Some of the men were like, yeah. <laughs> the wives are like, oh no. no. Why not? There's still, it's not clean. What would I need to do? Scrub this puppy. 
We're, we need water. We need soap. We need something that will get every speck out so that way it's useful for the task. That's the illustration Paul is using. It was interesting because when I went to Susie's um, pots and pans cupboard, she said, here, use this one. You're not allowed to use these. <laughs> I don't know if I can get those clean enough. Isn't that sort of illustrating the point? Of saying, we are looking for clean vessels to be useful. God is looking for clean vessels to be useful. What's amazing about the grace of Jesus Christ, though, is His cleansing power can handle any stain in the pot. Any stain. I don't care if this was crusty or if it was rusted out. The blood of Jesus Christ paid for our sins on the cross can wipe every bit of it out and make us a vessel useful for Him. We dare not forget that when we talk about cleansing because that's the heart of the cleansing. In this case, Paul is saying cleanse yourself, but he's not saying we have the power to cleanse ourselves. He's saying open yourself to the cleansing of Christ. Allow Him to cleanse you, to scrub you, to disinfect you. He can even disinfect the chamber pot enough to be used for cooking. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. It's a choice. How do we allow Him to cleanse us? It starts with confession. And this comes back to some of the basics of life. And and then I read, well, of course, I accepted Christ, confessed my sins. But how many times do we get into complacency and forget to be looking for the specks of dirt in our lives? And dirt just starts to build up over time, right? And and areas of our lives where we're not allowing the Holy Spirit to, to shine His light and to convict And so this is an intentional confession and opening ourselves up to the Spirit of God. 1 John 1.9, a familiar verse, but think about the cleanse part of the verse. We we, we love the forgive part. If we confess our sins, so that's the, the condition, if we confess our sins, which involves agreeing with God, repenting, turning, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness to make us a pot useful for the master i love that last part of the verse it's one thing to be forgiven and it's so much more precious to say he cleanses us and makes us spotless in his eyes it's his work our responsibility is confession we need to be asking god to cleanse us We need to be asking each other, do you see any spots? And making sure we are useful for the King. Useful for the King. Reading on in verse 21, Paul just shares three areas that will happen when we're cleansed. And these are just a great description of how God wants to use us. He will be a vessel for honorable use. And then three things. The first, set apart as holy. So He's made holy, not going back to the life before, but made holy, set apart, ready to be used. Some of your versions say sanctified here. Because God is continually making us holy. Made holy. Secondly, useful to the master of the house. Useful to the master of the house. 
Think about that. Where God can say, I can use you. You are useful for eternal purposes of the Almighty. And that, that stirs something in me. That makes me want to go confess and be clean. So He can use me for His purposes. And finally, ready, prepared to do any good work. Ready for every good work. Whatever God calls, I'll do. Whenever He calls, I'm on call. And so Paul here starts his instructions to Timothy by saying, let's start by cleaning out the heart and and making sure the heart is clean. He's writing this to a pastor. He's writing this to a young man that's now been in ministry for a while. So unless we think, oh man, I'm so much more mature than this passage, this is Paul and Timothy. This is to every one of us. Wearsby said, Preparation for the ministry is nothing less than the making of the man. Let me repeat that. Preparation for ministry is nothing less than the making of the man. And his point is, when God is preparing any of us for ministry, it starts by making the man, making the woman right with God. Ready to be used by God. When I think of cleansing and when I think of confession, I think we also need to add an an element of intentionality to this. An element of searching out sin. And, And not just saying, oh, the sin that I'm aware of, or when something comes up, I'll confess it. But realizing I need Christ to expose any area of sin in my life, especially the areas I can't see. I remember sitting in a, a conference one time and the, the speaker was talking about sanctification. And, and I think I've shared this before, but he said, you know what? I go days without sinning. I remember looking at him and saying, you have no clue what sin is. I don't go an hour without falling short of the glory of God. Because sin is so much more than an outside activity in what we do. Sin is our motives. It's what's in our heart. It's our thoughts and the things we dwell on and the attitudes that we we refuse to let go of. It's the grudges we hold on to. The anger that we, we just let fester. And I think of Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path of understanding. What the psalmist is doing there is not just saying, oh, when something comes to mind, I'm going to confess. He's saying, God, open me up, search, find anything in my life. And so it's an active, intentional (laughs) seeking out of sin to eliminate it. That's the heart we're to have when we say a clean pot is a useful pot to be used by God. Paul now goes on in verse 22 to explain a little bit more what he means by being cleansed and how this works out. And especially some of this applies to Timothy's situation with the false teachers and the arguments happening and and how Timothy should pursue that. In verse 22 we read, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, Love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
And we see a, 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 two commands here that we've seen before. Um, parallel commands that one says flee, run from something, and the other says seek something or run to something. And the two things that he mentions, the first is flee from youthful passions. And the, the idea of flee there is, like I said, to run from, to avoid, or to seek safety when you're being pursued. Sort of if someone is coming to attack you and you find a place of safety, how, how fast do you go to that place of safety? And you're going as fast as you can. That's how this word is often used. It was used in, in the, the Christmas story of Joseph and Mary with baby Jesus fleeing from Herod because Herod wanted to do what? Kill the baby. So they are fleeing for their lives. Same word. Same concept. And so Paul says, flee for your lives from youthful passion. And we read that and we're like, yeah, you, you preach that. Because what do we think of when we think of youthful passions? We think of the whole sensual side and, and challenging people to be sexually pure and, and to, to control that side of their passions. But the word here, and in this context especially, is so much more than that. It includes that. And let me tell you, that is vital. Because when we fall into sexual sin, it destroys ministry. It destroys credibility. And it leaves holes in our heart that have to be cleansed and have to be filled before we're useful for the King. But this is so much more than that. That's just one aspect. The idea is those youthful desires or youthful responses. One person said they were the headstrong passions of youth. And the idea is, what are youthful ways of dealing with things? Someone comes and challenges us, what's an immature way to deal with that? I'm going to get back in their face. I'm going to just, we're not, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to put you in your place. And we get angry and we get defensive. Those are the kinds of things that are included in this term, in, in this word. Those passions, a lust for not only physical things, but a lust for money, a lust for control, a lust for power, a lust for recognition. And we all fight some of these things. They come out in a variety of different ways. They come out in self-indulgence. In any situation, I'm going to pick what's best for me. If there's two pieces of cake, I'm going to pick the biggest one. I really don't care who's next. Self-indulgence. Impatience when, when difficulties come up or when people aren't doing what we think they should. We're going to solve this right now. You're going to change completely tomorrow. And that's, a, that's a, a, an idea, desire of youth. So many young pastors have come into churches and destroyed those churches because they tried to change everything to their wishes and what they thought it should be in the next month. Youthful passions come out with authoritarian answers. A lot, a lot of telling people what to do. And you need to do this. And you need to do this. And this is right. And you need to do this. And, and that is an aspect of immaturity that says, I know best. I'm going to tell you what you should do. And you should listen. Self-assertion often comes under this. Youthful passions come out in conflict with harshness, with bitterness, with resentment. And maybe we're smart enough not to display that publicly, but behind closed doors, names for people and, and just you know, setting your jaw because you're just frustrated with those people. These are all youthful passions that Paul says to avoid. 
to sum it all up, I think the word ego, ego comes to mind. So Paul says, don't go there. These are the things that destroy. These are the things that will, will make whatever situation you're in explode. There's a story after World War II of um, some Dutch children who were playing. And children, they'll play with just about anything they find, right? It's why as parents, you, you don't leave the steak knives out on the coffee table and, and, leave, and walk out of the room and hope your two-year-old doesn't pick them up. They'll play with whatever they find. And these Dutch children were, were playing out and they, they found an unexploded World War II artillery shell. They had no idea what it was. They didn't even tell anybody they found it. They kept it for several months playing with it. They'd throw it around, play catch with it. They had no clue. It was live, still at high explosives. Praise God, it didn't explode. Eventually, the authorities learned about it, found it, took it away, and exploded it in a safe place because it was still live. But what a picture of what we are playing with when we let our youthful passions and our natural responses to conflict, to, to situations in God's church. And so Paul says, flee those things. It's not about you, it's about God's church. But he doesn't just say run away from that, he says what to run to. And in the second half of that verse, he says pursue certain things. In your notes, as we, I guess I didn't give you the, the, the fill in the blank, evaluate what desires drive you. Evaluate what desires drive you and choose the right things. The motives of your heart are linked to usefulness. And so now Paul comes to, okay, what motives should you be pursuing? And the second half of, of the verse there, he says, but pursue chase after, run after, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Four things. Righteousness, the first two are vertical. They have to do with our our walk with God. Righteousness, a right attitude, a right conduct, what is pleasing to God. We ask the question, is my attitude pure? Is it pleasing to God? The second thing there, faith is a belief and trust in God, willing to step out, knowing that God, in faith, knowing that God is the one that works. It's a confidence in God. And the question that I, that I have to ask myself often is, am I trusting in God or self? Am I trusting in God or self? Something like the Acts 4, 4 ministry where we don't have all the answers. And that's hard because I'd rather trust in self. I'd rather trust in that I know all the answers. But we're going to see God work in amazing ways because He does. It's faith and trust. And then the next two are more vertical with each other. Love. A growing love for others. Am I showing love? Am I motivated out of love? Love being self-sacrifice, living for the good of others, putting them above myself. And then finally, peace. Fellowship and harmony with others. Am I making peace or stirring things up? Do I value harmony with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And those are four things that are really good to be reminded of. Am I working to be right with God? Am I trusting God? Am I loving those around me? Am I seeking harmony with those around me? And those are all more internal things. 
Those are all things that have to do with attitudes and motives. Because if those four things are what I'm pursuing, and every day when I get up, I'm, I'm like, okay, how can I be righteous before God today? How can I step out in, in faith for God today? How can I show love to someone in God's church today? How can I, I make sure there's harmony today? Do I have anything between myself and, and someone else in the church? If we started the day with those four questions, does that change how we act? Absolutely. We did that every Sunday morning. We could ignore the other six days. I'm not saying to, but if we did that Sunday morning, it would change how we worship, how we come together. And so Paul tells Timothy, not only make sure you're clean, but evaluate your motives. Make sure you're doing things out of the right desires. What drives you? What's important to you? The end of verse 22 there, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. love that phrase because it brings community back into it. Timothy, you're not doing this alone. You and I are not doing this alone. But he says, look for groups of people that are also seeking God, that are also seeking to be clean, to be useful for God. That's who you should spend your time with. Right community. Because the question is, what are the people around me? What are the people I'm hanging out with? What are they feeding me? If I hang out with critical people all the time, what kind of person am I going to become? Critical person. Because they're, they're feeding me all the, well, what about this? And all these doubts. Well, you know, so-and-so, I think they looked at you a little strange on Sunday. I don't know, I didn't even see them. But hey, you said it, so I, now I'm mad at them. And, and, and we're around people that are critical and that are not clean, that are not walking with God out of a right heart and right attitude, and it rubs off on, off on us. See, these things, these four things are developed in good company, in right company. That's a challenge. What kind of company are we to those around us? Are we critical people or are we encouraging people? Are we seeking conduct and attitudes that are right with God or are we seeking self? Are we seeking to step out in faith for God or are we always just a a naysayer for everything someone's doing? Are we seeking to love each other or are we so concerned about ourselves that we're more concerned that I'm not being loved? Are we seeking harmony with others or are we seeking to be right? These are huge issues. We need to honestly evaluate what motivates us and take this verse to heart. What we pursue defines how we respond. What desires and motives I feed dictates how I respond to trouble and difficulty. If we're making a dish, the cleaning of the pot is getting it ready, and this verse is about ingredients and making sure we choose the right ingredients. There are a whole lot of ingredients you hope aren't out there in the dishes for the potluck. Which I'm sure aren't, because they're all going to be delicious. It's a challenge. Evaluate our desires and what desires motivate us. Third point, value care and discipleship more than being right. Value care and discipleship more than being right. 
So many times we get caught up into, I'm going to change that person. And we forget that I don't change the person anyway. I don't change anyone here. The Holy Spirit changes lives. I'm simply called to be a really nice pot and useful to Him. And so value care and discipleship more than being right. Now, I'm not saying be wrong. I'm not saying don't worry about theology. But when I talk about being right, it's that sense that I have to have the last word. I have to prove to you I'm right. You know people like that? I think we all have people in our lives like that. I think we all slip into that without realizing it. And so what Paul is saying in these verses is we lead, we change lives, we're, we're, we're effective for Christ when we lead as a caring servant. When we handle those in error and handle disagreements with love and care, still with truth, but with love and care. And so when I say value care and discipleship, the discipleship includes truth. It includes leading someone to truth. The disciple choose those things more than being right. Let's read the verses. Verse 23, have nothing to do, avoid at all costs, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Stupid and ill-informed controversies, some translations use. Pastor Andrew talked about this in verse 14 and verse 16 as he talked about our words. And this is the third time in just a few verses that Paul's bringing it up. Why? Because it's important. And he's not saying that we shouldn't have discussions and he's not saying that we shouldn't have disagreements, but evaluate the importance of the topic and whether or not this is clear in Scripture or speculation. And avoid those things that cause needless fights. Now there's some things I'll fight over. If you walk in and say, you know what, I don't think Jesus was really the Son of God, we're going to talk about that. I'm not backing down. If you come in and say, you know what, I know absolutely when Christ is returning, that's a silly conversation. We don't know absolutely. We know in Scripture we don't know absolutely. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for a, a way to lead you to that understanding. But I'm not going to spend a lot of time arguing it. Because it's silly. That makes sense? The difference in, in the nature of what we're talking about? And so Paul says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And, and, and Paul is beginning to bring up idea that methods matter and how we teach people matters, how we approach people. Have you ever argued someone into a new way of thinking? I never have. Now, I've gotten into some, some wonderful, wonderfully fun theological arguments with some of you in here. Debates, discussions, not arguments. And it's a lot of fun, and we could, we could discuss the finer points of theology, and we could spend hours and hours doing that. I don't think anyone's ever changed my opinion, though. And I don't think I've ever changed someone else's opinion in that context. But in a different context, where through discipleship and exploring God's Word, say, well, what does God's Word say? And, and we look to a source outside of ourselves. Man, that's a great way to change lives. And so Paul says, you know, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. They only breed quarrels. They don't work. Chuck Swindoll said, arguing is futile. People who genuinely want truth don't dispute what you have to tell them, but they ask questions. 
They seek clarifications, but they rarely argue. That's an interesting thought. The tone is different. And so Paul now says, okay, let me share with you a positive way to teach. How do you affect lives? How do you become a useful vessel for Christ? You value care and discipleship. Verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. We saw that in the elders' qualifications as well. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. We see four ways to affect lives here. First is to be kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. And keep in mind the description of us at the beginning of 24 is that we're servants, slaves, bond servants. So it's an idea of not an authority, not coming and pounding someone, but coming alongside. And he says, be kind to everyone. And that's sort of an odd first one. But remember, Paul talked about, Paul used the same word in 1 Thessalonians 2-7 when he says, we came in among you like nursemaids caring for young children. And that's what the word kind means. It means to care for. As you would a baby. And we got to see Kelsey and Nathan's baby. Congratulations to you guys. And that, that little cutie, you just hold him and, and you, you want to care for him, right? Even us men, we, we, you care for them. You feed them. You, you give them what they need. That's the idea here that Paul is using. Be gentle. Be kind, even to enemies. You know, and this is hard. This isn't something that come natural, comes naturally. But if we're to affect lives, one of the first things they need to know is that we genuinely care, that our motives are right. To learn to be kind. Trying to teach my boys how to be kind. I think I've shared with you before that we use opportunities to teach them to be gentlemen. Monday, we're out to dinner as a family and we're coming out of the restaurant and I tell my boys, okay, I want you to go open the door for Mommy and Alicia. And, you know, we've done this before with different results. This one just was different. And so they run over and Mark can open the door for Susie, Jeff for Alicia, and that's all working out. And right before Susie gets to the second door, or she's getting to her door, Mark opens the door in front of her, right into her face. Just boom. And I'm thinking, okay, we need to work on kindness, (laughs) on gentleness. Like, son, it's probably not how you're going to get a wife. (laughs) Although maybe knocking her out. No. <laughs> um, but kindness is something we have to learn. It's something that doesn't come naturally because we just act and do things. Be kind to, to everyone. Second thing Paul mentions is able to teach. Ready to pass on truth. Skillful, which means we have to know the truth and be ready to pass it on. It may not come at times you're... you're you're thinking. Sometimes I get questions from people in the, in the middle of other activities. And I'm like, whoa, this is, this is an important question. Those of you that are parents, especially of teenagers, how many times have you gone in to say goodnight and as you're going to bed, a, a, a life question comes? Don't skip those opportunities. Be ready to teach. Sit on the foot of the bed and take four hours and teach. So Paul is saying, Be able to teach. Be ready to teach. Patiently enduring evil. And the idea of this is to avoid resentfulness. To be thick-skinned. The goal is always restoration. But in ministry, 
People might say things that hurt you, just like in parenting and just like in friendships and just like in family. We rub each other's shoulders and sometimes it hurts. And we can get so defensive so fast. And Paul is saying, you want to be useful for the king? Patiently endure evil. Brush it off. Tolerate difficulties without resentment. And instead, extend patience and kindness. A family rubs each other wrong at times. Don't be touchy. If we're touchy people, it is hard for the king to use us. In the the incredible wisdom of a children's story, The Velveteen Rabbit, one of my favorite stories, the rabbit is coming and talking to the skin horse. He says, how do you become real? Skin horse said, real isn't how you are made, it's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up or or bit by bit? And the skin horse answered this, and listen to this answer. It doesn't happen all at once. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. At that moment, we're talking about toys, but we're talking about life. And our effectiveness with people doesn't happen if we break easily. If one wrong word and we're done with this relationship. It doesn't happen if we have sharp edges and we're always causing issues with people around us. And it doesn't happen if we have to be carefully kept. What a great illustration of what Paul is saying here. And finally, the fourth thing he mentions there in verse 25, correcting his opponents with, opponents with gentleness. It's a different word for gentleness than kind. This has to do with humility, courtesy, not being impressed with self. And so it's this mild or, or this gentle friendliness that puts others first without worrying about what, I, what my, my issues are. But the key here is it is correcting. But it's correcting in the right spirit and the right tone. It's not blasting. And this takes the harshness out of it. And so many times we forget or we have this wrong idea of teaching. Teaching is so much more than passing on information. And teaching is so much more than just telling someone what to do. That only goes so far. Teaching that is effective leads someone to a point of understanding what they should do. Do you see the difference? And this is what Paul's getting at. It's about coming alongside and bringing someone to an understanding. It's the why questions that we hate. But we're explaining to people a path and why they should go that way. It's process teaching is what I like to call it. So when we're teaching, it's not just that we want to say this is what you should and shouldn't do, but this is why and this is how you get there. And that takes time and that takes energy and effort. Think of all the, the movies and all the stories about teachers of the year and what teachers are effective. What makes them stand out? They know how to help their students learn. Not just learn facts, but how to think 
and they do crazy wild things like, like jump off desks or whatever to illustrate points. So students are on this process of understanding the truth rather than just being told some fact. In the church, that's discipleship. That's walking life with somebody, living life with somebody, and saying, okay, this is why we don't do this. This is why we do this. This is how you walk with God. That changes lives much more than just a blast of do this and don't do this. Let's read on the rest of the passage. The goal. Verse 25, second half. Correcting his opponents with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. See, the goal isn't to excommunicate the people in error. The goal here is to restore them. To restore with truth. Verse 26, And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And so you see a goal of repentance and a goal of escape. And verse 26, what Paul is doing with Timothy is, is, is he's helping him have compassion for those that oppose him. He's helping him have compassion for their hearts, for their souls. And he uses a description of Satan setting a trap, setting a snare, and capturing someone against their will. And they are so trapped that they are doing the will of Satan even though they don't want to. And Paul is saying that not only that's how Satan works, but when we have people that oppose us, when we have people that we just think are nuts and not walking with God, to realize the root issue is the trap of Satan. And Jesus can take care of that. Changes our heart to one of compassion for them and hope rather than anger and resentment. So Paul gives three things for how to be useful pots. A clean pot is a useful pot. Evaluate what desires drive you and value care and discipleship more than just being right, more than passing on information. Because God wants to use us. Lord God, our Master, our King, I pray that You would cleanse us. Lord, even if it hurts this week, I pray that You would peel the layers of life away and, and find any sin in us. Anywhere where we fall short of Your glory, Lord, I pray that we as, a, as Your people, as Your church, deal with that this week. That we can be useful to You. Any attitudes, anything we're holding on to, any habits, Lord, expose that to us, even if it hurts. We can be refined golden vessels ready to be used for You. I thank You for this congregation that is so intent on being used for You. I pray that we would do those things that make us useful for the King. In Jesus' name, Amen.